Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I am your host, Scott Mort. I hope you're having just as fantastic a week as I am. I uh, I got uh, messaged by an old friend of mine, uh, May. May and I used to work at a call center in Johnstown. And she was just an absolute delight to work with. Uh, we would share our breaks together share lunch together, would even hang out outside of the outside of the workplace. I'd take her to the vet, not her, herself, of course, her dog. And uh, she she messaged me and said, hey, I've been listening to the old podcast. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I was on a, a, a true crime podcast for two, two or three years. And she said, I haven't I haven't heard you on that. And I told her, yeah, I, I need it out. And true crime is part of Strange Pathways. It, it, you see it in the YouTube trailer. You'll see that, you know, true crime, missing persons. And perhaps that's the reason I don't do that much true crime. It's just, psychologically, it wore on me. And you have to understand... I do I do a fair amount of research for for this podcast, but the true crime podcast I was on, it was daily hours of research every day. And I probably put two or three hours of research a day into this podcast. But you know, it's 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 interesting stuff. It's it's people who have seen ghosts. People who've seen cryptids, unusual phenomena. It's not every single week going back to somebody murdering somebody they claim they love. Family members murdering family members. Uh, Husbands murdering wives. Parents murdering children. It started to wear on me. It started to affect my psychology, quite honestly. And so that's probably the reason I don't don't go back to true crime very much may completely understood but then she said hey I love creepy stuff I'll give this a listen to I'm researching this vanishing hitchhiker phenomena may recounted an amazing story about a Don Sixto and Mavilla Bridge. Now, May is from Puerto Rico. Uh, Mavilla Bridge is, is bridge number 354. And it's on the Puerto Rico Highway between Corazal and Bayamon. I'm probably not saying those, those correctly. May, please forgive me. But there's, there's this story. Uh, Don Sixto, also, also known as uh, Sixto Phoebus, he was an author. And he wrote... Uh, Diaz de mis cuentros, the ten of my stories. One night, he's he's driving. He's he's coming home from work, and he sees this woman by the side of the road. She's standing near the Mavilla Bridge. He doesn't really get a good look at her. Pulls over, says, "Hey, do you need a ride? Get in." She gets in to the back seat of his car. He says, hey, 
you know, are you safe? Uh, doesn't say anything. How's the weather? Doesn't say anything. He's trying to strike up some sort of conversation, but he doesn't want to make like eye contact with her for, for fear that she's going to think that he's coming on to her. And then whenever she finally does speak, she says, drop me off at the cemetery. Okay. Now, Sixta, he's, he's keeping his eye on the road. He exits the car. And as she's walking away, he notices she has no head whatsoever. What do you make of that? What is that? Now, it it could have been that as she was walking away, she was looking down at her feet from the angle where he was. Maybe he just, oh, my heavens, she has no head, but she's actually walking with her head down. Maybe she's sobbing. Maybe she's crying. Or maybe he did pick up something paranormal. But this, this vanishing hitchhiker phenomena is rampant. It is the realm of urban legend. There have actually been researchers who've classified these. This was all the way back in 1942. Uh, two American folklorists, Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey, they collected as many accounts as they could of the vanishing hitchhiker and analyze them. They got, now remember, in the era before the internet, Beardsley and Hankey, they collected 79 written accounts from all across the United States. And they found four different versions. Version number one was stories where the hitchhiker gives an address and the motorist goes there and finds out that they've just given a lift to a dead person. That was 49 of the stories. 49 people said that they personally or knew of somebody who picked up somebody. They vanished from the car. They go to the address and it turns out, oh, that was my daughter. She died 15 years ago. This night. The second type of story was where the hitchhiker is an old woman who prophesizes disaster. And there were nine samples of that. The third type was where the girl is met at some sort of place of entertainment, a dance, a movie, what have you, a restaurant. And whenever she gets the lift home, she disappears in the car But she either leaves a piece of clothing or a piece of clothing that is given to her is left on her grave, corroborating her identity. Or the fourth kind, stories where the hitchhiker is is identified as like a local divinity. 
That's the fourth type. The fourth type kind of shook me. I, I had an encounter many, many years ago. Oh, this would have been around about 2004, 2005. I was, I was driving on what was called the water level road. This is, this is a road, and you can see it. It connects Somerset to Rockwood, Pennsylvania. Somerset, PA to Rockwood, PA. And it is a lonely stretch of road. It's not a lot of houses, not a lot of light. I'd been teaching drums out of, out of a store called Nick's Music. And I'm driving, driving home. It's cold. It's snowing. It's about 9.30 at night. And I see two people walking along the side of the road. Well, I don't know why, but just something, and I don't normally pick up hitchhikers. And they weren't even hitchhiking, really. They didn't try to flag me down. They, they didn't stick out their thumb. Nothing they did indicated that they were hitchhikers, but it was just that they were in the middle of the road and, and lost. If I would have been over to the right a little bit more, I would have been in danger of hitting them. So I go down the road about a quarter of a mile to where I can turn around and I come back and I pick up these two men. Now the back of my car, anybody that knows me knows that I keep a very messy car. The back of my car is filled with like tools and my briefcase. I told the one guy, I'm really sorry, but if you want a lift, you're going to have to like kind of work around this. Both of them said that was fine. Both of them were very thankful that I stopped. Their truck had broken down about three miles down the road and they just needed to get back home is what they said. So I drove with them. My seatbelt was on. They kept theirs off. And I figured if the worst happened, if they would have pulled a knife on me, I could have swung the car and rammed it into a tree. I'd get away with a couple broken ribs, but they would go flying through the windshield. That was always in the back of my head. I'm normally a very scared person. But... As we're talking, we get friendlier and friendlier. They won't tell me their names, though. Anytime that I go, hi, I'm Scott. Nice to meet you, Scott. That's the end of the conversation. Finally, we get into the town of Somerset. They don't tell me where they stay. They said, you can just drop us off at the courthouse. Uh, the Somerset courthouse, it's kind of a capital building looking architecture that's in the middle of Somerset. The radio hasn't been playing at all. And the one guy says, what do I owe you? And I said, you don't owe me anything. And he reaches into his pocket and he goes, please keep these. He goes, it's not a lot, but keep these. And God bless you.
it was three $1 bills. And these three $1 bills stunk of cigarettes. I told him, thank you. And then I drove off. Called my mom on the cell phone, said I was going to be late stopping by her house. I always stopped by my mom's house to make sure that if she needed something done or just to hang out with her. My mom was a night owl like I am. I put the $3 in my pocket. Along with all the money that I'd made teaching drums that night. And I turned on the radio. I... I will go to my grave saying that I did not have my radio on a religious station. Nor did I have any of the presets to a religious station. Just not my cup of tea. It's not that I'm not religious. I just don't like listening to religious radio. I flick the radio on. And this preacher is loudly proclaiming that I have entertained angels and not known it. How that God's messengers walk amongst us, testing us to see if we are good people. I I went home. And it was so easy to pick out those three $1 bills because of the way they smelled. I had a pocket full of money. I had close to probably $100 in my pocket. But I could fish out those three $1 bills just by the way they smelled. And I held on to those three $1 bills for a long time. I called them my angel money. They were my angel dollars. I had those bills for close to 10 years. Until, sadly, a family member broke in my house and took them. I had never spent that money. No matter how hard times got for me, and there were some hard times, I never spent that money. Until, like I said, that family member broke into my house and took it out of my safe. But that's another story for another time. Our next tale comes to us from the wonderful fandomsandmonsters.com, the infinite well that Lon Strickler has created. This, uh, this is going to take us to Southeast Ohio, 1962. The author, who is anonymous, was 12 years old at the time. She's not going to say where this took place specifically. And she kind of hints that it might be near the Wayne National Forest, but she doesn't she doesn't come outright and say it. What she does say is that these experiences were not hers alone. These these creatures, and we'll get to what they are, these creatures were witnessed uh, by her parents, uh, 
by other members of her family. And, and these creatures are, of course, Bigfoot. In Ohio, they, they refer to it as the grass man. The anonymous woman said that they, they, it happened too often. They didn't even keep a record of things. And the, the neighbors, young boys fishing nearby the river, they would have sightings as well. What made things a bit different was that there was one huge Bigfoot and it would come to try to take her. Her father had actually shot it with a 12-gauge. Her, her father uh, was about 15 feet from it whenever he shot it. Uh, it. It would try to take her out of her bedroom at night the time that he shot it, it came during the day. She says every time that the shotgun shells would hit it, he'd stomp really hard on the ground, like one foot after another. Her brothers and her, they ran up to the bedroom. The younger said that higher ground was better for defense. And that there were more Bigfoot over in the farmer's drainage ditch across the road. Huge Bigfoot. She said that the Bigfoot were of all different sizes, different genders, male and female. But the biggest one was a 14-foot tall male with a head the size of a basketball. All of them had the same shade of brown fur kind of like the color of decomposed wood in the forest uh she could see skin around the eyes that was tanned and facial hair there were glimpses of skin showing through the facial hair though they couldn't make out a neck broad chin teeth about the size of the nail on your middle finger but they were more flat than human teeth and just a full mouthful and just a huge, the bite on this thing would be extremely wide. Dark eyes with some, some white around them. Less, less white than human eyes. Crow's feet. Crow's feet on the outer edge of them. Weathered skin like, like a farmer who had spent too much time outside. Broad shoulders. You can see the collarbone apparently though. Uh, on one side, and it, it, she said it looked thick compared to a human's at 14 feet tall. I'm not surprised. Muscular, heavy built, not fat. The She said the adult females were almost as big, but whereas this 14 foot tall one looked old, the females didn't really seem young or old. She doesn't know if they were all related, but she said they seemed close-knit. What makes this woman's story different than most, not all, but most, is that the Bigfoot took her captive, not once, but several times. She said most times the captivity was peaceful, 
but occasionally violent. She was around 12. She woke up underground in a cave that was dripping water from roots. She was screaming her lungs out. And she ran out of air to make any sounds. All these Bigfoot were surrounding her. And she was unable to move on this slab of rock. She wants to scream, but she's so tired she can't even do that anymore. But then she relaxes. And they all start smiling and laughing. How she returns home each time? She doesn't seem to say. It feels very much like alien abductions where they take you out of your room and then just your back. The thing is, it's not just her that remembers this. Her family remembers this as well. In her own words, these were clearly not childhood nightmares as evidenced by the incident that took place around the time I was 12 or 13. Mom asked me questions each time he, the big Bigfoot, came back to my window and took me with him. He took me with him many times. After talking to me to get me to tell the big guy not to take me with him, and that they told me to tell him no, I wasn't going, and that not seeming to work, she pretty much gave up asking me anything. She did talk to Dad about how to stop this from happening, that she thought it was affecting my health and robbing us all of our sleep. There was the concerns that if they did the wrong thing, this creature could kill everyone in the house. Mom often wept to my older sisters about this big hairy thing that got into the chicken coop and how she needed their help to convince Dad to do something to stop this before someone got hurt. She told them not to go near me and told me not to go near them. She was quite fearful and I can't blame her. The family, in what must just be this strange mixture of terror and frustration, they decide, maybe if we move the bed, they won't be able to find her. We'll move the bed downstairs. And this made the male Bigfoot so angry. He pecks at the window upstairs, but her parents have strictly forbidden her from leaving the downstairs for any reason. He bang on the side of the house, dad yelling at him, go away, that he wasn't going to see me anymore. This 14 foot tall Bigfoot is stomping on the ground, loud grunts, and then just finally gives up. The anonymous woman said that she could hear the Bigfoot's thoughts in her head asking where she was. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. There's another incident whenever she's around 19. Her parents are on the front stoop talking. And before, before she leaves, there's this long, loud scream. She thought someone was being murdered up the road, but her dad refused to call the sheriff's office to report it. 
So she calls the sheriff. The police tell her that they're not going to go into the woods. That it's station policy not to go into the woods for any reason. This woman suffered. This woman suffered amazingly. And in not just the ways that we're thinking. This woman was used as a pawn by the nearby churches. They would they would be told what was going on and they'd take the girl aside and anoint her with oil, lay hands on her, praying out loud. And all this girl wanted to do was be a girl. She was confined to the house for weeks, not even, not just, not just not being able to go outside. Remember that feeling during quarantine, whenever quarantine was high and you couldn't go outside? Not only can she not go outside, but she's not allowed to look out the windows for fear that these Sasquatch, these grass men, are going to come through and kidnap her again. It's, it's something I've said before. I'm going to say it now, and I'll say it many times in the future. The paranormal can and often does ruin people's lives. This will take a person's life and twist it and make it terrible, horrible, unbearable. This is not anything to play around with. And we need, as, as a society, as human beings, we need to start taking these accounts seriously. If what this woman said is true, and she's anonymous, she's not trying to make any money off of it. If what she said is true, then it's the tip of the iceberg. If it's happening to her, you can guarantee it's happening to 10 more people that we'll never hear about. There are other tales uh, of, of Bigfoot kidnapping humans. The Albert Osman tale, where he ended up escaping from the Bigfoot by, by getting them to eat tobacco and making them very sick. There was a tale of a hiker who got kidnapped by what I believe was a female Bigfoot. I'm taking this off the top of my head. And it took him into a canyon that was very gravelly and licked the bottom of his feet raw and bloody so that he couldn't walk out on his bare feet. I believe that this stuff is happening. I believe that there is something going on taking people in the woods, even though a lot of what David Polites says is exaggerated, sometimes outright falsehoods. But there are cases where it obviously seems something is taking people in the woods. Is it Bigfoot? In some cases, I'm willing to put money down. Yes, in some cases, it is Bigfoot. 
And in some cases, I guarantee it's something else. But we need to start taking this stuff seriously. We need to listen to these people. If this is true, she needs to be listened to. If this is a fabrication, she needs to be listened to because it's a sign of a mental health problem. We can't go on as a society making fun of people for what they say happened. We have to look at each one carefully, examine, and then act accordingly. Our last tale is going to take us all the way back to March 25th, 1971, 10.30 p.m. Penny Military Base is, is a Spanish Ministry of Defense base made up of the Air Surveillance Squadron and a combat unit of the Air Force. It has state-of-the-art radar for the time, 1971, and it's integrated into NATO. That night, Jose Heffrey, he's a corporal at the military base. He sees this greenish light in the sky when he's on surveillance at his post. The light gets closer to the base and it stops just above the radar antennas. This freaks Jesus right out. And he starts to, to warn the rest of his companions He says, come out, take a look at this. And they see it too. This light then shoots towards the horizon at an impossible speed. They take a little bit of time. They steady their nerves. And they realize that the green beam of light that they had seen was coming out again. With amazing bravado, they decide to go see what's happening. They take their equipment, they take weapons, and they take a dog, a dog named Fierro. And they go to the place where the light was coming from. Jesus, the two other soldiers, they arrive, and they begin to hear these noises, shrill noises inside their head. They get queasiness a feeling of discomfort not straight up illness but just oh this is not good and there is pain fiero is in pain the dog he's shaking his head pawing at his ears his ears hurt that's whenever they see something moving towards them Something human. Something around seven feet tall. It's making strong, rapid steps towards them. The soldiers, through their sickness, they yelled, Halt! And this thing just keeps coming. Jesus gives out the second halt! This thing just keeps coming. Third halt. The soldiers open fire on this seven-foot-tall figure just about 15 feet away from them. 
And instead of like recoiling from the shots or falling dead, this seven foot tall creature just stands still. Jesus, through the fire of his weapons, the flashes of the shots, he's able to see this thing much more clearly. Jesus says that it's an angelic looking humanoid, very thin. Very white complexion, long hair, clothes that reminded him of a work uniform, a buckle in the center of the belt. The soldiers run out of ammo. And this thing is still looking at them. For a few seconds, it just stares at them. It does 180 degrees. It turns around and it runs away just as fast as it had come. Where the figure comes from and leaves to, though, there's a huge drop. The base is built on top of a mountain, there are no trees. Or anything that blocks the vision. It's just a drop. Jesus. The other two soldiers. The dog. They collect themselves. And once again. Very bravely. They decide to go inspect the area. They find a piece of fence. That surrounds the base. Disintegrated. Six feet of the fence are missing. The thing is, though, think of a prison. I'm sure we've all driven past a prison. You have two fences, right? There's like an inner fence and an outer fence. If you get through one, you're going to have trouble getting through the other. Only the inner fence is broken. They search the area. They find nothing. The soldiers return and the commanders interrogate them. After a few days, Jesus says that everything he had experienced completely disappeared from his memory. It was one of the other soldiers who was there with him had to remind him that he had this amazing experience. Agents dressed in Air Force uniforms from the United States arrive at the base and question the three soldiers one by one by one. At the end of the interview, the men are told to forget what happened. Don't give it any more thought. At the end of the interrogation by the U.S. Air Force officers... the men are asked to have some photos of them taken. They go outside and they're taken to a place where there's a white wall. They're in the direct sunlight. But strangely enough, the photos that were taken used a very powerful flash. That's an odd little addition to this. 
a powerful flash in direct sunlight. Thank you once again for joining me this week on Strange Pathways. A little bit of a side story. If you happen to be from the Pennsylvania area and you are near Pittsburgh and you happen to see something that looks like a canine chupacabra, uh, why, don't you, why don't you give the Humane Society there a call? A, a woman took in what they think is a coyote or a dog but in in a real life mystery case she's not certain what it is and they took it to the uh wildlife works and they don't know what it is and then on january 27th just a few days ago uh, they were taking care of this creature be it a coyote a dog what have you I don't actually think it's a chupacabra. I'm willing to to say that this might be a coyote or a dog. They said it was extremely friendly. But January 27th, they go out and the cage is destroyed. There's claw marks on the walls, a chewed windowsill, a rip in the screen. Uh, what what I am calling the the uh, the rescued chupacabra has escaped. So if you happen to be from the Pittsburgh area and see what looks all the world like, what somebody would think a chupacabra would look like, uh, give them a call. I'm sure they'd love to have it back just to take care of it and, and get it a little bit healthier before they figure out what it is, find a new home for it. They said it never acted aggressive or distressed, and they were taking care of his injuries. If you do see it, don't, don't try to capture it. Give the office a call, 724-925-6862. That number, once again, 724-925-6862. I will have photos of him and and photos pertaining to our cases this week up on the Strange Pathways Facebook page. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can do so through strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Get out there. Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 